Well, good morning again. Just whilst I set myself up, uh, I should just say it's, uh, it's great to be back with you again. Thank you for inviting me to come. Um, obviously, this is the, the summer period of the, uh, the talk, so there's only the one service. So I've decided to combine the two messages, so you've got a, an hour-long stint now. <laughs> I am joking. People started looking nervous. Um, and also, to, uh, to answer the question, um, it's, it's an excellent question that was just asked. Where is God in all of this? Where is he? And we'll, we'll come on to a bit of that, actually, in this talk, which is uh, it's quite interesting. For someone that writes a full script of his talks, to have a question asked almost on the spur of the moment that is seemed to be not addressed by, but definitely pointed to in the sermon is, is I have to say, it's God's providence. So... Um, so yeah, that's uh, it's a good thing. I think I've got all the technology sorted, but you never can tell. So uh, forgive me if suddenly a screen starts flickering or something. So for those of you that would have checked your uh, programs, you would have seen that the title for this morning's talk is um, where, "What Happens to Your New Year's Resolutions," which is a bit of a strange title given that you're in July. But I think we'll, we'll, you'll understand why I've I've chosen that particular title. Um, who made any this year? Who made any New Year's resolutions? Show of hands. Anyone? One. One person. Who has ever made a New Year's resolution? That's better. Okay, right. <laughs> I thought no one was going to put their hand up. I was going to be a loser straight away. But no, um, I won't ask any of you to share what any of those were or, or anything like that, um, or whether, whether you're even still keeping them. I would just say this. I think there are probably two types of re- resolution. There are ones of deprivation. Um, you're restricting yourself from something. Or affirmation. Ones where you're being positive about something, where you're saying, I'm going to do this. So deprivation, like give up smoking or give up drinking um, or stop spending so much money on useless magazines. Um, or affirmation. I'm going to learn how to cook. I'm going to give more to charity. I'm going to travel more. Those are probably the ones that are easier to keep, I would say, because they're positive. You think, I'm going to actually enjoy doing this. But one thing about resolutions for individuals is that they tend to change year on year. You'd hope they do, or else you're just doing the same one and you're failing each time. And that is what I do. I make the same resolution year on year, and I fail it every year. But resolutions change, generally speaking, uh, depending on the person, depending on the circumstances. The one that I make year on year is I say to myself, this year I'm going to read through the entire Bible in a year. And I have this book called For the Love of God by D.A. Carson, which has a program for reading through the Bible in a year. I usually get to about the second week of February, uh, and then it peters out a bit. Sometimes it keeps going a bit further. The furthest I've ever got was about mid-June, but that's still not a full year. Other excuses just take over. Life gets in the way. And I just think, oh, it's just, it is a bit of a chore. I'm just being honest with you, because that's what my heart tells me. It says it's a bit of a chore. So I don't enjoy it so much, so I stop doing it. That's what happens to resolutions. Not just with ones like reading, but ones with the ones that you do all the rest of the time. All the rest of the ones that you have set. Who's ever made this resolution? This year, I'm going to trust God more. Oh, that was uh, deprivation and affirmation. I'll catch up in a minute. 
Who has made the, the resolution in this year, I'm going to trust God more? Now, if you're a, a believer here this morning, if you, if you were baptised, there was probably a resolution that you made at the point of your baptism, which was something along the lines of, I will hand over the reins of my life or control of my life to God. That is a resolution. Even with that resolution, it depends entirely on how I feel about God, I think. And as, as we can pretty much all know, the, our relationship with God varies throughout the year. Even if we're here this morning who wouldn't consider ourselves uh, a believer, if you've been exposed to Christianity or Christ, then I would guarantee that you have had at some point some feelings about Christ. Your feelings towards God will have changed over the course of your lifetime. Now, whether we're going through times of relative ease or, uh, or even times of, of severe hardship, our relationship with God is probably one of the very first things that's impacted. I'm sure there are some people here, because I don't want to be callous in the message that I'm, I'm bringing to you, I'm sure there are people here this, this morning who even in the last six months have been through some very difficult times. I'm sure you all know people in your family, your friends. I'm sure there are those that have been through very difficult times. I know that sometimes our faith is shaken. I know that sometimes we feel so far from God or that God feels so withdrawn from us that we struggle to see God in the storms of our life. I mean, just think about what we've seen in the last six months, going back to, the, to where is God in all of this. In God we trust, well, we've seen the Zika virus in January. The World, World Health Organization announces the outbreak. February, North Korea launches a long-range rocket, uh, violating multiple UN treaties, prompting condemnation from around the world. Uncertainty is rife. March, a suicide blast in Lahore claims 70 lives and leaves almost 300 injured. The target of the bombing, if you don't remember it, was Christians celebrating Easter. April. Clashes between Armenian and Azerbaijani military kill at least 193 people. It was the heaviest breach of the ceasefire since of the 1994 ceasefire in that particular conflict. Not just man-made ones. In May, Egypt Air Flight 804 crashes with 66 people on board into the Mediterranean. June, United Kingdom votes to leave the EU. Uncertainty. Terrorist attack in, Istanbul, in Istanbul's main airport kills 45 people and injures 236 more. Last week alone, we've seen the attack in Nice that we've already mentioned, killing nine, nearly 90 people, and the Tur Turkish military staging a coup against the government. Now, these are just items on the world stage. And this, this is not everything. This is like a few items from the news. There is unrest, uncertainty, and there is fear. How quick is it, how quick are we, to start thinking that in these situations or other similar circumstances, either we don't need God, we'll just make do on our own, or we'll ignore God, or we'll forget God is there because we get swept up in it, you can't even see in God we trust anymore, or worse, we blame God for it. How quickly do we start to doubt God? 
I'm sure that each of you here, if you look back at the last year, could read off an equally extensive list of difficulties that you have had, personally, had to face. And everyone's problems are different, and everyone's problems are real to them. I'm not here to to belittle anyone's problems. If you stub a toe, like I did this morning, that's a problem for me. The problem then, as we looked in our, our passage at Malachi 3, I guess that the nation of Israel must have felt pretty similar. I mean, they've been through the ring a few times at this point in their history. The book of Malachi was written to, uh, to a context of 5th century, um, the, a record of, of what Malachi, translated to mean messenger of God, he's relaying to the people en masse from God. The circumstances are similar to those of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you know your biblical history. Uh, the Jews are no longer under Babylonian captivity. Now they've returned to their national home, as was enforced in 538 BC. They'd returned on the promise that on their return, on their rebuilding of the temple, God would again dwell with his people. The nation again would be great. But what appears to have happened is that the temple that was built was nowhere near the splendour of the temple as it formerly was. Now during this period, the Jews had to live by faith more than by sight. God's presence had not returned to the temple. The nation was experiencing economic difficulties, drought, crop failures, pestilence. It's not so dissimilar to the situation we've got now. Economically, following the Brexit vote, the pound dropped to its lowest value in 31 years. And it's, I know it's a bit of a, a joke, me saying that we're struggling uh, economically in this country, given all the, the goodness that we have to experience. But again, it is uncertainty. The pound dropped in its value. We rarely go for a year without seeing that there's a drought in in an African nation. Can we say, as we look around, that we see God's blessing hand, even if we just watch the news in the morning? As we would learn through the books of Nehemiah and, and Ezra, things weren't looking like they were going to improve anytime soon. What we see is that the priesthood was corrupt. They were defying God's laws. They're not objecting to blatant national disregard for God's rule. The people were, if you read through the books, the people were marrying idolaters, those who were actively uh, practicing false religions. There was widespread abuse of the disadvantage. Now, whilst the religious leaders were proving orthodox in their religious practices, their religion itself was a dead orthodoxy. It was clear that the priesthood were being very quick to cut out anything that was too strenuous, particularly with the demands of the sacrificial laws. In fact, the earlier part of the book of Malachi shows that the priests who were financed and fed by the leftovers of the sacrifices that were being presented were permitting 40 sacrifices to be presented, which was against the sacrificial law. But they were permitting it. It's almost like that phrase, you had one job. That was their job. And they were letting it go through. And then we read about the judgment, actually, uh, that God gives against this practice in chapter 1, verse 6 to 2, verse 9 of the book of Malachi. Going back to what we said to the children, God's instruction manual, the way to live best, was being ignored. And worse than that, it was actually being manipulated to suit the desires of the priests. Now, God's instructions hadn't changed. God himself hasn't changed. Verse 6 
What does it say in our, in our passage? It would be good to keep the, the verses open in front of you so you can make sure I'm not spinning a yarn. Verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Why? So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. He is still being merciful. He is still being merciful in his dealings with the Israelites, despite their actions. However, because of their actions, the Israelite people were in danger of missing out on the guarantee, that guarantee that I spoke about to the children. I told you you needed to pay attention. Just as we looked at, the Israelites appeared to just be using the parts of their instruction manual that they wanted to. So that's the problem. Then we have, and I will catch up with these slides eventually. Either Lord, do not change. The pattern is next. You can see a pattern throughout the book of Malachi, just to give a, a bit of a structure. It sets out a very, actually, satirical layout. It's the indictment against the Israelite people. The book shows six accusations, the first three calling Israel to remember the laws of Moses, and then the second three calling the people to remember the promises made to Elijah. And there's a definite carrot-and-stick approach to these passages. The stick side of the punishment is for disobeying God's laws. It needs to be seen, though, in the context of the carrot, the promises. What I mean is, the curse that the Israelite nation was under was as a direct outcome from their disobedience to their faithful God. Without using these words, God is essentially saying, I told you this would happen. But in the same argument, God is reaffirming that it doesn't have to be like this. His blessing is still available. I, the Lord, do not change. Then we have what the prophet says. This is the structure of verses 7 through 8. The prophet goes, God raises a charge against the people through the mouthpiece of his prophet. Verse 7. Then there's the priests. The priests are pictured as responding, asking for a justification of this charge, albeit through a preempting by God. It's, it's God saying, but you say, as, a, as opposed to a spoken retort by the people. So that's the priests. Then the proof. God replies and expands and proves the charge, verse 8. The verse we're looking at talks about the nation of Israel through the action of the priests robbing God. The priests allowing the tithes, the first fruit of the produce of the nation, to be held back from the sacrifice of God, which was against the sacrificial law. Perhaps, just perhaps, in their mind, the priests were thinking, actually, it's, it's good economic sense to hold back some of the sacrifice because there's a, a drought and a famine. But God is saying, the judgment... The judgment on this is that the judgment on the Israelite people is because the lack of blessing that they are experiencing was because of their holding back of their offerings to God, rather than their holding back being the effect of the curse that they were under. So they got it twisted. So what does this all mean to us this morning? I mean, what's, what's our situation got to deal with all this? Does this mean that the, the reason for the hurt that we're witnessing in the world around us is, is down to, to God's judgment? Well, there is an argument for that. But really, that would be ignoring the general judgment that the world is already under following Genesis 3. And to be honest, that's not a subject that we have a great deal of time to look at this morning. Clearly, my daughter really wants to go into it. What we're going to focus on this morning is just the carrot side of the argument of verse 10. 
In combating addiction, it is advised to find something to replace the vice to be removed. We as a nation, as humanity, and yes, even believers, whilst we're in this mortal body, we are addicted to rejecting God. We are. We are addicted to sin. God wants to get rid of that. He wants to break our addiction. So he gives us this so-called carrot to fix in our minds, to help remove it from us. We're going to focus the rest of our time on verse 10, particularly uh, the second half of verse 10. We're using it as a, as a verse for the year at, at West Street, and, and I'll come back to that a little bit later on. But I've purposely run through these details, the context, etc., uh, fairly swiftly, because I want to give us as much time as possible to think about the impact of God's words uh, to us this morning. So a quick, just a very quick recap of what we've looked at. By the people holding back from God, they were being shown that they were missing out on the blessing of God, verses 7 to 9. They were clearly being shown that the route for the nation's blessing was to commit to God 100%. Malachi 3.10 is there as a reminder of the carrot side of the promise. Verses 11 and 12 uh, show specifically in response to the judgment that were being imposed on the Israelite nation, how God would correct things. But it's verse 10, which I want us to take away in our minds. And verse 10 reads like this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And this is the key bit. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. The picture's moved. That says prosperity behind there, question mark. And the picture, I don't know if you can see it, it says, does God want you to be rich? Just to be clear, this is not a prosperity gospel message. The prosperity gospel is defined as, as this. I'm going to have to read this because it's a proper definition. Prosperity theology, sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, or the gospel of success, is a religious belief among some Christians that financial blessing is the will of God for them, and that faith, positive speech, and donations, possibly to Christian ministries, will increase one's material wealth. Based on non-traditional interpretations of the Bible, often with emphasis on the book of Malachi... The doctrine views the Bible as a contract between God and humans. If humans have faith in God, he will deliver his promises of security and prosperity. But throughout the whole of Scripture, does God promise that in this earthly life we will have fame, fortune, health, wealth and happiness? No. Does he promise that life will be constantly easy and plain sailing? No. There's a, a number of verses there which you may not be able to see because they're quite small. But how are we to test God then? God says, test me in this. How are we to test him? Well, first we need to identify the promises that we are going to be testing. Again, this is not an exhaust, exhaustive list. Try and keep up with me because there's a big list and I'll try and go through them very quickly. 
Does he promise that he will work everything for the ultimate good of those who trust in him? Yes, Romans 8.28. Does he promise the care of a father for his children? Yes, Hebrews 12.6. Does he promise that we can have access to the God of creation, not through our own efforts, but through the work of his only son? Yes, Ephesians 2.8. That his son intercedes on our behalf before the throne of grace? Yes, Romans 8.24. Christian caught in repeated sin... Does he promise that he will not break a bruised reed? Yes, Matthew 12, 20. When he feels distant, when he feels distant, does he promise that he will complete his work in us? Yes, Philippians 1, 6. Non-believer here today, does he have a promise for answering your doubts? Yes, Mark 9, 24. Believer or otherwise, Does he promise his grace and forgiveness is sufficient for you? Yes. 2 Corinthians 12.9. This is the best one. It's It's the pinnacle. Does he promise that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ? Yes. Romans 8, 38 to 39. What magnificent promises these are. Why wouldn't we want to claim those for our own? Why would we not trust these promises, test these promises? Why would we scheme and manipulate and stumble through life? Do we not perhaps trust the one who is making these promises? Do we not trust that his promises are trustworthy? In that mind, in that mindset, do we not trust the one who sent his only son to die on a cross for us, for me, for you? Do we not trust that he would be true to his word? Seriously, what is stopping us from giving everything? Giving over everything, not just giving financially. Why would we want to keep anything in our frail and weak and un-understanding, ununderstanding hands. Why would we try and seek the approval of the world around us instead of seeking the approval of God in heaven? So why are we starting to think about New Year's resolutions? Why would we start on that? New Year's resolutions are essentially promises, aren't they? They're promises to yourself, from yourself, that you will either do, you will or you will not do something in the coming year. Now, as we mentioned, depending on where we are in the, the journey of life, our resolution and our resolves change. The point is this. What impact do I think the verse would have on me? And what impact do these verses have on the Israelite people as they were hearing this message from Malachi? And I think this is probably one of the main reasons that we choose us to not trust God, that we don't allow ourselves to trust God. Think about this. How does claiming these promises look? How does it look if I accept all of these promises to be true? What areas of my life would it impact? Well, I think, if I'm honest, it would impact the following, and it's not an exhaustive list. I think it would impact my giving. I think it would impact my speech, my evangelism, my relationships, my parenthood, my Bible reading, my prayer life. Perhaps I should ask the question like this. What area of my life would remain unaffected if I claim these promises? 
And if I'm honest, I think the answer is none. So we don't. We choose to not give ourselves to God because we know it will mean a change from our comfortable, easy, fitting-in lives. But when faced with this promise, when faced with this promise that we have in Malachi 3.10, test me in this, God is saying, how foolish we are to settle for these trivial comforts when looking in the face of these promises. Why would I only wait until the new year to effect a change like taking the challenge to test God in my life? It wouldn't just affect my life, but it would be so much more beneficial. Using his instruction manual, as we said, to its full capability. Why would I wait until the new year to stop holding back from Christ that which he has first given me? Why on earth would I be so slow to relinquish it back to him, knowing how sure and how great his blessing is? Maybe it's not like the warranty. Maybe it's not like the warranty period that you have in the back of an instruction manual for a microwave. It's not a 24-month return period. You don't know if it's going to be answered straight away. It's not going to be in 30 days. It's not going to necessarily be in in, in a day but it will be made good. We printed out these, this verse um, on little cards at our church. Like I said, we used it as a verse for the year. Um, we printed them out so as a church could uh, pin these around our house or use them as a bookmark because it's a really simple way of reminding ourselves of God's promise on a, a daily basis. I have a few with me um, here today if you would like one. It's, it's not the clearest printing because it was an old printer. But um, if you'd like one, do come and speak to me and I'll, you can take one away. But it was my prayer there at, at West Street that we would use Malachi 3.10 to really search our hearts, to find out what we're holding back from him. But not just that. The verse is written uh, in such a way as to remind us that actually in anything we can submit it to God. God who has promised so much good to us. God who is mighty. He's the Lord Almighty. It says, test me in this, and there's a blank space so that you can, if you were to read it, you can put the subject matter of your prayer in that block. But it says, says the Lord Almighty. It is the Lord Almighty who is making these promises. God who is challenging you to test him this very morning even in these promises. A test that he longs for us to initiate. He longs for us to seek him. God loves to bless and loves to give good gifts to his children. How gracious he has been to us already here this morning. Uh, As we were praying out the back, we were reflecting on the fact that we can meet here without persecution, without fear of someone breaking in. Even that is a blessing. For want of a better phrase, let's put God's promise to the test that he might bless us. Not in a way perhaps that we might want, but in a way that is for our eternal good. And let's look forward to his blessing. That blessing that our storehouses would overflow with the gracious bounty that he would pour out on us. That's a pretty exciting prospect. If you look back at those those verses and you just try and read them, if you were to write down that list and read them out, you do get quite excited as a believer and you should you're right to but why would you wait why would you wait 
forget a New Year's resolution. Let's have a, what is it, 10 past 11? Let's have a 10 past 11, Sunday the 17th of July, 2016, resolution. Let's put God to the test. Because he is anxious to bless. 